Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Back on the afternoon of October 1st, 1982, Sony introduced a new home stereo gizmo. It was the world's first compact disc player. They called it the CDP-101. That's a weird name, but if you take it apart, it makes sense. CDP stands for Compact Disc Player. The 101 is binary notation for the number 5. That's because the head of the audio division considered this first model to be in the middle of Sony's future lineup of CD players. So, I guess, 5 on a scale of 1 to 10. Sony had been working on compact disc technology with a Dutch company called Philips for a number of years, which released their own machine, the CD100, about a month later. Compact disc technology was rolled out worldwide in March of 1983, and for the next 17 years, the recorded music industry experienced a boom unlike it had ever seen before. Music fans were convinced to buy all their favorite albums again, and as the popularity of vinyl and cassettes waned, the CD became the currency of the realm. And lo, it was good. Insane amounts of money were made year after year after year. But nothing lasts forever, right? And in about 2000, the bloom started to come off the CD rose. And now CD sales are in a total free fall as streaming becomes the most way people access music. Now, the compact disc isn't dead yet, but it's never going to be the juggernaut it once was. What happened? And how? This is actually a fascinating story. This is the rise and fall of the compact disc. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Hi there, I'm Alan Cross, and this program is dedicated to the compact disc, those five-inch pieces of plastic that powered the music industry for almost 20 years. Now, those days are gone, and gone forever, thanks to streaming and the changing demands of music fans. But before the CD heads off into the sunset and becomes a niche format, let's offer some appreciation for the digital goodness CDs brought to us for a couple of generations. And let's begin with one of a surprising number of songs written about them. This is from 2008, and it's a Swedish band called Jerk Store. That's Sweden's Jerk Store and Compact Disc, which was released in 2008. If we're going to do this right, we have to go back to the very beginning. The technology that went into CDs goes as far back as 1966, when an American inventor named James T. Russell figured out a way to record digital information, that is, data that had been reduced to patterns of zeros and ones, onto a sheet of transparent foil. It was lit by a halogen lamp from behind, which turned these zeros and ones into patterns of light. The original plan was to create a rotating disc that could play back both audio and video. And the result was something called the laser vision disc, about which really the less said the better because it was a big flop. Then, 1974, a group of engineers within Philips, the Dutch electronics company that I mentioned earlier, started to look for ways to improve on the vinyl record. They first experimented with a disc that was about 20 centimeters in diameter, but eventually settled on one that was 11.5 centimeters. And you want to know why they picked that number? 
because Phillips also developed the cassette in the early 1960s. The diagonal width of a cassette is 11.5 centimeters. Meanwhile, in Japan, Sony was working on digital recording machines and first demonstrated an optical disc that was 30 centimeters in diameter, so the same diameter as a vinyl LP, one foot. This was September 1977. This thing could hold 60 minutes of music. A year later, they came up with a disc that could hold up to 150 minutes, and again, still 30 centimeters or one foot. In 1979, when Sony and Philips realized that they were working towards the same goal, the companies teamed up to split the costs of research, to share knowledge, and to come up with all the proper standards for making this new music storage format. As for the name, well, that was Philips' idea. They invented the compact cassettes in 1963. That's what you actually call these things, compact cassettes. So it was agreed that the new format should be called the compact disc. They also figured out some of the finer points of the manufacturing process. Meanwhile, Sony, which had a head start in digital storage technology, contributed what they knew. The result was something known as the Red Book CDDA standard, which is a collection of specifications that are still used to make compact discs everywhere on the planet today. So yes, the CDs we play today are still based on technology designed in 1979. Let's go through some of these specs. Information is recorded in a spiral, just like a vinyl record, except that CDs play from the inside out. Rotational speeds changed as the disc played. Track 1 plays at 480 RPM. As the laser moves towards the outer edge, rotational speed slows to about 210 RPM. That explains why if you listen carefully to a CD player, you can hear how the mechanical sounds change. That's the motor slowing down. It was decided that the sampling frequency would be 44.1 kHz. This means the recording technology grabbed real-world audio, analog audio, 44,100 times a second. Resolution was set at 16 bits, which is related to how the computers of the day stored data. The diameter was ultimately set at an even 12 centimeters, 5 centimeters bigger than the original Philips prototype. That 10% increase in diameter represented a 20% increase in capacity. You can do the math and the geometry and it'll explain that. Do not believe any stories that this increase in size was because an executive at Sony demanded that the new technology have enough capacity to store his favorite performance of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Great story, not true. The real truth is very mundane. If you add all this up, combine it with a basic geometry and all the other physical situations, you end up with a disc that is capable of storing between 74 and 75 minutes worth of music. Okay, let's pause here for a song about CDs. This is Screeching Weasel. It's a most technologically advanced sound reproduction engine and it fits in the commercially viable sense. The thing you're listening to is called a compact disc. Every subtle nuance of a tune is made available to you. All right, moving on. People often ask about the first compact discs. What was the first album to be released this way? Well, let's begin with where they were made. Two factories were originally set up. Philips ran one near Hanover, Germany, and the other was run by Sony in Japan. The first test pressing, a CD used to demonstrate the new technology, was a recording of the Berlin Philharmonic, conducted by Herbert von Karajan, performing Richard Strauss's An Alpine Symphony. This appeared in 1979, and this recording was chosen for its clarity and wide range of dynamics, something that the compact disc promised. So let's have just a little listen.
So that was officially the first CD. It was a test pressing, it was a demo disc, and it was used for internal industry presentations. The first public demonstration of the technology apparently was on a BBC show called Tomorrow's World in 1981. Of a long playing record from here to here. 60 minutes of digital music. That's music recorded as a series of electronic pulses. A lot of record companies are now recording music using digital techniques, but until now, it's always been converted back to the conventional system, onto an ordinary vinyl record, which collects dust, gets scratched, and relies on the needle physically tracking along the groove to reproduce the sound. This new long-playing record looks very similar to a video disc we've shown you before. The surface is covered by a layer of transparent plastic, so you don't have to worry about grubby fingers or even scratches. Now, underneath the plastic is the digital code. Six billion microscopic pits and spaces that represent the music. And they're arranged in a continuous track, just like the groove on an ordinary record. In reality, the track on this disc is two and a half miles long. Instead of a needle and cartridge, a laser beam picks up the track by reading that sequence of pits and spaces and converting it back into the pure sounds of the original music. Now, whether there's a market for this kind of disc remains to be seen. But unlike the video disc, the good news is that most of those manufacturers of the audio disc, the new one, and there are 29 of them, have all agreed at last to use the same system. So that means no matter what kind of record or what kind of player, they can all plug in to a conventional hi-fi system. And I'm sure you'll agree that that is common sense at last. Here then for you is the latest single from the Bee Gees. You hear that music? That's the Bee Gees and Livin' Eyes, the first song from a CD to be played publicly. The first CD to be produced for public consumption was another classical work, Some Waltzes by Chopin, performed by Claudia Aro. It came off the line on August 17, 1982. Then we move on to the first popular music album released on CD. That honor went to ABBA with their 1981 album, The Visitors. It was pressed in August of 1982. From there, the idea of first loses a bit of its meaning. On October the 1st, 1982, Sony Japan issued 50 titles all at once, and according to legend, the first of those 50 was 52nd Street from Billy Joel. Then came the big worldwide launch in March of 1983, when CBS Records released 16 albums in the new format, including Thriller from Michael Jackson. Not everybody was crazy about this new technology. The recording industry was still suffering from a terrible recession in the early 1980s. For the first time ever, first time since the Great Depression, Revenues in the industry had gone down, and investing in new tech wasn't something they were too keen on. Record stores also weren't too happy about CDs. They already had miles and miles and miles of shelving for vinyl LPs. Plus, they had to devote space to 7-inch singles. People were still coming in to buy music on 8-track, and they were grappling with the explosive rise in the popularity of pre-recorded cassettes 
thanks to this new thing called the Sony Walkman and similar portable music devices. What, you, you expect us to install more shelving for another format? And one that requires people to buy an expensive machine to play it? Are you nuts? Do you know what the economy is like? No, thank you. Another reason retailers were skeptical had to do with the CD size. They were so small that they were very easily shoplifted. Those problems were solved by a special sort of packaging called the long box. This was either a paper or plastic package that was about 6 inches wide and 12 inches long. It was too big to slip into your pocket. And with those dimensions, you could display them in exactly the same space as your racks of 12-inch vinyls. CDs and long boxes fit two side-by-side in an old vinyl bin. So problem solved there. And here's another thing. Because Sony and Philips each had their own record labels, they were determined to make this new format a hit. They had to make their money back. At first, sales were slow and confined to audiophiles. Only about 350,000 CD players were sold in 1983. And CDs themselves were expensive, usually running anywhere from $16 to $25 for a domestic release, making them almost double the price of a vinyl record or cassette. To put that into perspective, a $20 CD, a not uncommon price back in the early 1980s, is equivalent to about $45 today. And the selection wasn't great. Like I said, there were two, two manufacturing plants on the planet. Don't worry, we were told, as more plants come online, selection will improve and prices will drop. No, no, really, prices will drop. Okay, yeah, hold that thought. Eventually, though, the public began to get into CDs. Perfect sound. No cracks, no pops, no static, no warping. But to be honest, the state of vinyl records began pushing people towards the CD. And for this, we can blame the oil crisis of the mid-1970s. Petrochemical products like vinyl became more expensive. To save money, records became thinner. Lots of vinyl was recycled, which introduced impurities that caused new pressings to sound worse with clicks and pops and low-frequency rumble, and they were easily scratched and damaged. And frankly, music fans couldn't wait to get into CDs because the new vinyl records being produced through the late 70s and early 1980s sounded and performed terribly. And not only did people start to buy new releases on CD, they began to replace their old vinyl records with new CD reissues. Good trivia question. Any idea? Who was the first person to have their entire catalog reissued on compact disc? Was this guy in February 1985? By 1986, music fans were really getting into this new compact disc thing. Dire Straits' Brothers in Arms album, a beautifully recorded album, became the first CD to sell a million copies. And on February 26, 1987, the Beatles, who had been holding out, waiting to see if the CD was worth their time, issued their first four albums on CD. Now, this was a milestone, because if the Beatles were going to give their blessing to this new format, well, then we definitely have a thing going on. Another milestone was the opening of the first U.S.-based manufacturing plant. A Sony facility went online in Terre Haute, Indiana in October 1984, and the first CD it produced was Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA. By the end of 1988, there were at least 50 plants around the world cranking out these new discs, and by 1989, half a billion discs had been sold. And lo, it was good. More in a moment. 
This episode is on the rise and fall of the compact disc, that 12-centimeter silver coaster that powered the music industry for almost two decades, generating billions of dollars. Sony and Philips turned on their marketing machines. In addition to selling the new format to fans, they also targeted labels, artists, producers, engineers, executives, anyone and everything who needed to be convinced to move into this new digital future. Phillips went so far as to sponsor Dire Straits' tour in support of their digitally recorded album Brothers in Arms. Leader Mark Knopfler even did a TV commercial extolling the virtues of the CD. So, no wonder Brothers in Arms became the first CD to sell a million copies. When it came to old formats, 8-tracks were the first to go. The last major label release on 8-track was Fleetwood Mac's Greatest Hits in 1987. Then the bottom dropped out of the vinyl market, with CDs outselling the old format by 1988. By 2000, vinyl was barely alive. In 1991, the cassette, which for a while had been the biggest selling format for pre-recorded music, was overtaken by the CD. The compact disc was quite simply the fastest growing entertainment product in the history of the universe. 61 million CDs were sold in 1985, 140 million in 1986, and then the numbers just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. 1 billion in 1992, 2 billion in 1993, and Sony and Philips cleaned up too. They made money from the licensing royalties of the technology. Every single CD earned Sony and Philips a little piece, a little taste because of licensing. CDs ruled to the point where on average over 95% of recorded music industry revenues came from sales of the compact disc. It's funny, too, how prices really didn't come down that much in the 90s, despite the fact that new plants went online every year and more discs were sold every year. Labels had brought the cost of manufacturing a CD down to about a dollar, yet the retail price remained $14, $15, $16 or more. So talk about a fat profit margin. I recall being in a store in the 90s and seeing a copy of Led Zeppelin's fourth album, you know, the one with the Stairway to Heaven on it, selling for $24.99. That's almost $40 in today's money. And at the time, you could buy the vinyl version for, what, $6.99 on sale. So what's up with that? That album had already sold more than 20 million copies. It had paid for itself many, many, many times over. And somebody still wanted to sell it for $25, a domestic version for $25. But we kept buying the things by the tens of millions, the hundreds of millions, the billions. This album sold more than 25 million copies worldwide, most of which... We're on CD. CDs goosed the music industry to incredible heights. And while the price of music in this format stayed stubbornly high, the cost of buying a CD player kept coming down and down and down. By the end of the 90s, there was a CD player for everyone, from ultra-high-end audiophile models costing thousands of dollars to some that sold for around 100 bucks or even less at the local drugstore. And there were all manner of portable CD players. Sony's Discman was the CD version of the Walkman. Nice idea, but it was bigger than a portable cassette player. It was hard to drag around a wallet of CDs with you. And no matter what kind of anti-skip technology it promised, the damn things always skipped. Always. Go jogging with one? <laughs> Get out of here. And then there was the car. In 1984, Mercedes-Benz became the first auto manufacturer to offer an in-dash CD player. Others followed, including, of course, all manner of CD changers installed in the glove box or the trunk or under the seat. 
By the end of the 90s, CD players and cars were practically standard. The last model to offer a factory cassette player was the 2010 Lexus SC430. And, you know, we love CDs. Okay, so the hinges on the jewel case always cracked and broke, making it impossible for the case to stay closed. Or that little thing in the center of the CD tray broke, putting your CD at risk of getting scratched or falling out of the case. But still, hey, you know what? They sounded way better than cassettes. The high watermark of the CD came in 2000, when 943 million were sold just in the United States. Worldwide, 2.44 billion. This album was released in October of that year and ended up at number one on the charts. Like I said, CD sales peaked in 2000. Since then, though, things have turned into a death spiral. Global sales went from 25 billion in 2000 to around 5 billion in 2018. What happened? That's what we'll look at next. After 17 years of consecutive growth, CD sales peaked in 2000. But then a number of things conspired to create the great CD die-off, and some of the reasons were self-inflicted. Let's start with that. First of all, like we've been saying, the price of CDs did not come down the way we were promised. They remained expensive. And second, the recorded music industry made the cynical decision to eliminate the CD single, which was the digital equivalent of the old 7-inch single. The attitude seemed to be, what, you want just that one song on the album? Too bad. No more singles for you. You buy the whole album. That's the way it's going to be if you want just that one song. Sorry, we make the rules. Okay, quick sidebar here. There were two types of CD singles. The first one was the same size as a regular CD, but had between one and four, maybe five songs on it. The actual single plus a couple of bonus tracks that often weren't available anywhere else. The second type of CD single was just three inches in diameter which was introduced in 1987. This was called a mini CD or CD3, and it could hold about 20 minutes of music max, but they were pretty much all gone by 1985. They were fine when CD players had drawers, which is how you loaded the disc into the machine, but it did not work with players that were self-loading, unless you use something called an adapter ring that you snapped around the outside of the disc so it had a fake diameter of 12 centimeters, the standard size of a CD. These things were flimsy, they easily cracked, and if you use them in a self-loading player, they sometimes unbalanced the disc, making it unplayable. Or worse, it trapped the disc inside the machine. So good riddance to these things. I have a couple of CD3s in my collection. One came with an edition of the Nine Inch Nails EP, Broken. Don't think I've ever played it. I have it, but anyway. Five-inch CDs, however, were great, and some bands used them extremely effectively. The Kings were Oasis. Noel Gallagher was cranking out so much music at the time that each official Oasis CD single came with three or four other non-album tracks, studio recordings, demos, live tracks. All the Oasis CD singles were worth collecting, especially since some of these bonus tracks, as they were called, became hits of their own, like this. Oh, 
Oasis and Acquiesce, a bonus track on the Some Might Say CD single from 1995. I was a real fan of CD singles because some real treasures lurked as bonus tracks. By the end of the 1990s, many consumers saw the recorded music industry as, well, let's just be honest, greedy and unresponsive to music fans. High CD prices, the end of CD singles, a parade of acts with one good song and a CD and then 12 pieces of crap. But what were the options? Well, there was this new thing called the Internet. People had been trading music online since the early 1990s, but it was a slow, buggy process. The music industry knew all about it, but they really didn't take file trading seriously. Their big concern was the rise of CD burners in home computers. That was the big threat, this illegal piece of plastic that you could hold in your hands. The industry was positive that this would lead to people burning bootleg copies of legitimately released albums and selling those. They honestly didn't get that people would be more interested in individual songs and the convenience of digital files. They just couldn't wrap their heads around how digital files could ever possibly transcend any physical format. Then, towards the end of the 1990s, a new thing called the MP3 was seen to be picking up steam. University students glommed onto them right away using their school's high-speed internet connections. And then, on June 1st, 1999, a new easy-to-use software program called Napster appeared. This made trading MP3 files a snap, and it ushered in a whole new way of doing things. Very quickly, the attitude became... Why should I buy a full CD at a stupid price if I can get just the one song I want for free from the comfort of my home computer? The tech-savvy, cash-poor students started to take on the monolithic music industry. Not too much happened for about 18 months. CD sales remained pretty steady. But then in 2001, just as Napster was being sued out of existence, two other programs were introduced into the wild. There was Kazaa and BitTorrent. By 2003, CD sales had dropped 20% from their all-time highs. The industry was in a panic, so they tried to litigate themselves back into control, but it was, it was way too late. They tried to innovate themselves back in control with legal digital services, but nothing they did worked. This is where Apple comes into the picture. In January 2001, iTunes was introduced. This was originally music management software for people with Macs, who had ripped CDs to their hard drive or had collected music from somewhere online. You could also use iTunes to burn compilation CDs, the digital equivalent of the old cassette mixtape. In October 2001, the iPod was introduced. This wasn't the first digital music player, but it was way, way better than anything else out there. And overnight, portable cassette and CD players seemed to be about as cool as wind-up gramophones. Steve Jobs went to all the record labels and basically said, look, <laughs> piracy is killing you. You have to go digital. You can't do it right. So here is my solution. And the labels really had no choice but to agree. And on April 28, 2003, the iTunes Music Store opened for business. iTunes would eventually have up to 70% of the marketplace for digital music, something that the labels absolutely hated because they'd lost control. At the same time, though, the industry kept trying to push pieces of plastic on the public. There were two attempts at high-fidelity digital discs. Remember that CD technology is still rooted in standards that were created in the late 1970s and early 80s. So let's update that. There was the HD CD and the Super Audio CD, two standards that were, yep, not compatible. There was DataPlay, a disc so tiny that it was actually a choking hazard. And then there were misguided attempts of putting malware on CDs. 
if you try to rip this CD from a major record label, something called a rootkit would install itself on your machine, preventing you from copying anything. And that ended really, really badly with a bunch of lawsuits being filed by and on behalf of music consumers. What are you doing? You're putting malware on my computer without my knowledge? I have in my collection a Cranberries disc called Doors and Windows. This is a CDI disc, meaning that it contains all sorts of multimedia content as well as music. This one could be played in a computer and a CD player, but you needed to turn down your CD player for track one because it just might read it as ear-piercing static. You want to rip it to your computer? Uh-uh. Wouldn't let you. But, uh, yeah, there's ways around that. Island Records and Philips Media announce a technological breakthrough in multimedia entertainment. Doors and Windows, an intimate, interactive look at one of the most successful new groups in music today. Hello, we are the Cranberries. Arriving in stores worldwide on September 26th, Doors and Windows offers a unique opportunity for fans to get better acquainted with the Cranberries through their own As the first decade of the 21st century rolled on, CD sales continued to drop, and piracy seemed unstoppable. Then, in 2005, YouTube went online, and there was another big drop as people started looking for music that way. Record chains began to go out of business because fewer people were buying discs. Big box stores stopped carrying CDs. Computers stopped coming with built-in CD-ROM drives, and the number of CD players you could actually go out and buy had dropped drastically. And if you've bought a new car in the last couple of years, not only did it probably not come with a CD player, but you probably didn't even notice. Today, we're all about digital music on our phones, whether we connect them via headphones, Bluetooth, or plug them into our cars using a USB connector or the auxiliary input. And then streaming. By the time Spotify came along in 2008, the CD market had dropped by at least two-thirds. By 2018, that drop was 90% from its all-time highs. 90%! And it's not done falling yet. It has been a total and complete collapse, as we all have collectively abandoned the CD for the unbelievable convenience of digital. And you know something? The music industry isn't too concerned anymore because they're making so much money from streaming. Revenue from streaming first eclipsed that of physical media in April of 2018, the industry still isn't making as much as it did in the glory days of the CD, but the bleeding has stopped. They're actually making cash. It's to the point where labels would probably just like to see CDs go away so they could save all those costs of manufacturing and warehousing and transporting and dealing with retailers. Now, now th think about this. There was a time when people would break into your car just to grab whatever CDs you left behind. And now there's a lot of meh when it comes to compact discs. And it's weird. CDs don't have the same emotional cachet as vinyl. We're heading toward a time when vinyl may just outsell CDs again for the first time since the middle 1980s. Why would that be? Well, that's a discussion that could probably go on for some time. So, is the compact disc dead? No. Japan, 
Germany, South Africa, and South Korea have very solid CD markets. But even those countries are starting to see erosion in CD sales, largely because of the adoption of streaming music services. Will the CD disappear? No. But it will become a niche format for people who want to possess music, just like those who like vinyl. I think we're looking at a split in the way we consume music. Streaming is, is, is great for sampling what's out there, for you know, researching different sounds, or for the sheer convenience of having the universe's music at your fingertips wherever you are. That's music consumption. Then we have the other way, which is personal music curation. There's something to be said for having a carefully cultivated collection of physical music, CDs, vinyl, whatever, that you can display and study and go back to again and again and again. For the time being, these formats, compact discs and vinyl, deliver higher fidelity and better sonic quality than we can get from digital files. Now, that's slowly changing with formats like high-resolution audio, which are fantastic, by the way. But a digital file is still not the same as taking something down from the shelf, holding it in your hands, and going through the ritual of playing it. The CD had a very good run, and like vinyl, it will continue to service for years to come. But it will never, ever be like it once was. This program is available as a free podcast. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any other site that carries on-demand audio. Please rate, review, and share if you get a chance. I run a website called ajournalofmusicalthings.com. It's updated every day with stuff from the world of music that I find fascinating and amusing and maybe absurd. There's also a free daily newsletter that comes with it, so you're reminded of all the stuff that's going on with the site. I can also be found through Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and all correspondence, complaints, critiques, and comments can go to alan at alancross.ca, and I promise to get right back to you. Technical production for all this is by Rob Johnston. We'll talk to you next time. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. 